He began disrobing. As he pulled off his pants, the boat almost turned over. Yvonne screamed. Seeing how frightened she was, he began deliberately shaking the boat. Come on, baby, the dress. Out of fear, she complied. Now, now, no, forget you. He shook the boat again. She complied again, crying and swearing in protest. Only her black bra remained. this boat out of here she squeezed her face in disgust we're through you bastard it's over tonight's uh, concert will differ a little bit from the previous ones in that uh, we won't be using an orchestra obviously we will be using uh, piano the music for tonight is all piano music and instead of one featured artist, we have three uh, very esteemed in individuals. I'm very happy to have them here tonight. From San Diego State University, Professor Richard Thompson, jazz pianist extraordinaire. From here at UCSB, our own extraordinary pianist, Jeremy Haladina, Professor Jeremy Haladina. And the esteemed author poet from Los Angeles, California, Professor Donald Bakir. I know you just got your, your program, so let me give you a little bit of information about some of the pieces. Most of the pieces that you hear tonight come from a genre that I pretty much invented. They're called Afro-inventions. In a simple way, you can think Bach meets the loneliest monk, maybe. Or Bach meets uh, Scott Joplin. You have to ask yourself, like I did in the late 80s when I invented the genre, what would happen if you, um, if you took the form, the Baroque form of the invention, and you merged it pretty much with um, Afro-vernacular music? The results would be pretty strange. And I hope you enjoy the consequence of my insanity. <laughs> <laughs> also tonight, we feature uh, two, uh, two preludes, one emanating from earlier in my career. It's called uh, Preludes for the Young Pianist. Simple, elegant, hopefully naive, typical of, my, of, of the period. And um, the second set of preludes are called Tongolese Kabbalah and Shaku which is Swahili, it means preused before a dissertation. It's two of them, Maishi Aroho, meaning life of the spirit, and Mchanganyiko, which means mixture. Life of the spirit is a sort of contemporary pianistic tone poem, and this music, both, um, <clears throat> excuse me, both uh, preludes will be used to underscore the short story that I wrote in the late uh, 1990s called Now Do We Understand? Now Do You Understand? The poetry was written during the, uh, during 19, during, uh, the mid-90s, basically, and the short stories were written from 1995 to 2000. So without any further ado, I'd like to bring to the stage our first eminent artist, 
Professor Jeremy Haladina to open the program. Thank you very much.
Mr. Leaf, I've seen your many moods, watched you fall far from your home, change your color, change your size, watch you die and be reborn. You're amazing, Mr. Leaf, for the beauty that you bring. But to those who see you most, you scarcely but a thing. Irreverence. Returning to this old slave fort whose symbols still lay bare, the split between my then and now fulfills a lifelong prayer. Yet even with the tragic past, this hallowed ground exudes, there still remains a tyranny which desecrates our history and venerates indecency, yet reigns most unsubdued. It's the tyrant of irreverence so common in those visitors who see these shrines as nothing more than fate's cruel autograph. It's sometimes masked as innocence when seen among the common folk who use indifference to cloak the guilt of ages past. Its face becomes impertinence in those thoroughly stripped of pride and programmed to apologize for sins they've not amassed. But when faced with the omnipotence of those whose souls can never say their future ended yesterday, Irreverence is thrashed.
profound remorse engulfs my total soul when witnessing how easily a race can be seduced into its own disgrace by setting adrift the culture it should hold. As with our songs of pain, which all extol, by some, they're used to further obfuscate the very vision that can set in pace the path of progress to ever loftier goals. The crisp, syncopic nuances of our movement, once scorned by patience vultures as fruits of lust, and arrogantly claimed, it comes from us. An end will come to this perennial blues when we breathe new life in an art now in the dust. Once again, I've returned to the womb of my past where my soul first enrolled in a hideous class one which taught most completely the lessons of pain and the lessons of hate and betrayal and shame. I was greeted by someone who looked much like me. It was here in such slave forts we split history. Once in time we were colleagues of like signature, but today he's my tour guide. I'm his visitor. It's a shame, it's so sad that our eyes cannot meet, but reflections of truth are sometimes indiscreet. So now, it's a job, and the past we'll ignore, cause today, he's my tour guide, I, his visitor. As we browse through the room where our forebears were sold, he recited their saga, remorseless, and cold. Should I think this act gruesome? Should I be enraged? No, because we're just actors. This castle, a stage, where we sell to the tourists a past fate depraved, and they walk away chuckling. <laughs> They're still quite enslaved. But it's paid entertainment. It's nigger folklore which includes him, the tour guide, me, visitor. Moving towards the slave dungeons, one thought would not quit. My amusement when tour brother glosses this spit. But the moments forthcoming would not be for laughter. Instead, they would speak of a heinous disaster, a study no people could ever efface in the technique of dehumanizing a race. From the main deck, we entered the first of the dungeons. It felt as though we had been suddenly plunged into darkness from light in a way quite symbolic, a sinister flight to a gross melancholia. Downward we sloped, as if summoned by Satan, approaching the sty where the undispatched slaves were dishonored discultured and ill-congregated, disrupted from all but their color and fate. 
Flight attendants, please prepare for landing. These words spoken by the captain of Delta Flight number 183 were the first of two events that interrupted the windy, rainy descent of the Airbus into the Baton Rouge Metropolitan Airport. A sudden blinding flash of lightning struck the plane just before it landed. This was the second. It created no damage, and the shock of the event was over just as quickly as it had come. 
Within seconds, Lewis Wellington was listening to the eerie whistle of the jet slicing through the air shortly after it touched down on the runway. The roaring sound of the brakes followed quickly, dissipating the whistle as the plane slowed. After deboarding, Lewis rented a car and drove down to the South Baton Rouge. A short time later, he arrived on the avenue leading to the street on which he had lived as a child. He did not understand the urge that drove him to return to his old neighborhood. But it consumed him so deeply that he didn't see, until the last moment, the speeding vehicle that jumped into his lane while trying to pass another car. He slammed his brakes quickly, then yanked his steering wheel to the left, swerving his car violently onto the grassy incline that shouldered the street. The hideous screeching of the other car swiveling back into the proper lane was the rhapsody that let Lewis know he had somehow avoided his obituary once again. What else, he said to himself, as he reversed his vehicle back onto the road. It had been a week of near misses. Just that very day, while on his way to the gate to board his flight, he clumsily missed a step while running up the escalator. This hurled him headfirst into a suitcase that had somehow sandwiched itself between him and the razor-like edges of the moving steps. On the previous day, his girlfriend had set fire to the wicker chairs on his patio deliberately while he slept in another part of the house. His girlfriend had fallen deeply in love with Lewis, but Lewis had found it difficult committing himself to any woman since the death of his childhood sweetheart. This is why he never married. So one day, in a moment of utter frustration, she snapped. Somehow, he smelled the smoke and woke up in time to minimize the damage. He never figured breaking up with her would be this frightening. It's good the plane didn't crash, he murmured as he turned onto the street on which his old home resided. But what did it matter, he thought. He had finally arrived to the place in which he had truly been happy as a child. He had returned home, or rather to something that once resembled it. A gloomy look quickly eclipsed his sunny countenance as he drove down his old street. The row of dark green houses that dotted one side of the street no longer radiated the aura and vibrancy of life as he had known it. Some were dilapidated, others were not far behind. Most were empty. The visible parts of the sidewalks, those parts not yet overrun by the grass that encroached from the unkept lawns, did not host the chatter and frivolity of children playing marbles or jump rope or hopscotch or rolling their little red wagons full of rocks up and down to no particular destination as he had done when he was a boy. A few people, mostly elderly, still occupied some of the houses, but not many. He recognized none of them 
How could he? He had left this neighborhood 40 years earlier when he was 18 years old. He parked his car in front of his old house, got out, scanned it thoroughly, then extended his probe. Thank God they're still here, he thought, as he gazed at the windowless home of his best friend who lived next door and that of a relative who lived just next to him. The gloom on his face deepened. It was as though all the houses on this street had become appendage to the huge cemetery that hid behind them. But even this cemetery had once been a happy place for him. It was where he often played, sometimes with his friends, more often by himself. It was now a forest of weeds and shrubs. Only a strong gaze revealed hints of the tombs upon which he once played. The tombs that were once the cars he drove, the boats he paddled, and the airplanes he flew. Now this cemetery looked like, well, like a cemetery. Around the corner were the remains of houses once occupied by other friends. They too were barren. The whole neighborhood reeked of empty shells over which hovered dozens of oak trees with branches that dripped down like angry fingers poised at any moment to crush them. Perhaps as a final act of mercy, these tall, ominous-looking oaks rose stoically and majestically as if keeping an unabashed vigil over the neighborhood as it slowly died. Their long branches sprouted over in every direction, hiding from the heavens an ever-rising sea of aimless vegetation that surrounded the dying structures, swallowing them up from underneath. Only the mercy of the night gave release to the sight of this pathetic ritual of decline by enshrouding it in darkness. At the very end of the street, however, rested a strange anomaly. A White House, well kept, its lawn well manicured. Lewis overheard two elderly passers-by chatting about this house, about a beautiful young girl whom they thought had just moved there. She was seen only in the evenings, always peering through the screen that surrounded her porch. From the description, she reminded him of a girlfriend he once knew, who had once lived in this very house. But this could not possibly be her. His childhood sweetheart would now be about his age. And she may not still be alive. She was not alive. She died before he moved from this area. So who was this beautiful girl that now occupied his old girlfriend's house? The one who never left her porch. His curiosity forced him down the street towards the well-kept home. It was about six o'clock, not quite dark yet. As he approached the house, he noticed what seemed to be a figure on the porch. The closer he drew, the clearer the image got. He slowed his pace little by little, finally stopping a few feet from the steps. His heart palpitated as he beheld the vision 
on the porch, now crystal clear. Yes, she was beautiful, beautiful. But it was not her beauty that made him quiver when he saw her. The entity on the porch staring back at him through her gorgeous, light brown, almond-shaped eyes was Yvonne Amar, his former lover. Yvonne, he asked in a tone half-spoken, half-whispered. Hi, baby, she answered in the soft-spoken manner that typified her speech. She walked through the unopened screen door and down the steps, her bare feet making no sound as she walked toward her former lover. Enshrouding her was a sheer, loosely fitting maroon robe that extended down to her feet. As it billowed, it imparted a surrealistic quality to her well-sculpted legs and the reddish-brown tint that colored them. A black bra projected the image of her breast through the robe. There was something familiar about Yvonne's attire, but Lewis couldn't quite figure it out. He tried to step back as Yvonne grew closer, but his legs would not move. Seemingly in the blink of an eye, she was upon him, stroking his face gently to ease his fear. She planted a kiss on his full lips, a sensuous, intoxicating energy surged through his body. What's wrong, baby? She said softly, through an inviting smile. You look like you've seen a ghost. Lewis collapsed. Lewis awakened to the light of the moon, bathing his face as he rested his head between Yvonne's breasts. With her legs locked around his waist, they lay back peacefully on top of an old white tomb, barely visible in the thick, unkept vegetation. Submitting to the nocturnal serenade of the incense, her head floated on a pillow of her own hair, a large, soft afro that splattered over the tomb as she stared upward, scanning the heavens with her light brown eyes, illuminated like those of a cat. This can't be happening, he said. Of course it can, honey. You believe your eyes, don't you? Nope, because if I believe my eyes, they tell me that my mind had gone off the deep end. Why is that? Jesus, honey, I'm laying with my girlfriend who died decades ago, who hasn't aged one single day since then, whom I should not be able to feel because she's a ghost and who is just as beautiful as... He paused for an instant to gaze at her, which confirmed just how right he was. As the day I last saw her, continued solemnly thank you she said demurely I miss you too don't interrupt he returned with a mock urgency this is my dream not yours oh so you think this is a dream 
well evolved. What else could it be? It's either that or I've gone completely insane. There are other alternatives, honey. Really? Like what? She did not answer. Instead, she uncrossed her legs, slid from underneath him, then stood in front of him. Do you remember this place? She said. Oh yeah, the place we always came when we wanted to be alone. Our secret spot, a graveyard. Jesus. He laughed sarcastically. But you gotta admit, honey, nobody would look for us here, especially at night. This was our favorite tomb. Sure was, Lewis said, with an expression that confirmed the return of the memory. Do you remember what happened the last night we were here, Lewis? I'll never forget it, Yvonne. I wanted to make love to you. You were so afraid, but I wanted you so much, so much. He echoed in a softer tone as he shook his head mildly from side to side. I never did completely apologize. Yes, you did, Lewis. I just doubted that you meant it, or if you really meant what you said afterwards as I lay in your arms. I vowed that we would be together forever, that I would never, ever leave you. We talked about our wedding night, remember? You said that on our first night, you would wear a see-through robe and it would be... He paused as he looked at her, then continued with a noticeably more solemn tone. The color, I said, look best upon you. You like it, honey? She asked as she levitated above the weeds and spun around several times. So this is our wedding night, Yvonne? He asked in an abrupt tone. So what am I supposed to do, baby? Kill myself so we can be together? This is the punishment you're demanding? Tears began to drip from his eyes. Yvonne, I can't undo what happened that night. I'm so sorry, baby. I've lived it a thousand times since then. Each time, a part of myself died. His tears now poured heavily down his face. The wetness of his face glistened under the light of the moon. I'm so sorry. He put his hands over his face and wailed loudly. The event that caused Lewis so much pain happened on the following night. Lewis invited Yvonne to go with him boating on the city park lake. She reluctantly accepted. The water was calm when Lewis pushed his uncle's motorless boat into the water. They got in and paddled around the lake, at first staying close to the shore as Yvonne had insisted. Let's go out a little farther, honey. He turned the boat to the center of the lake and paddled towards a tree that seemed to emerge out of the lake. Its branches dripped with Spanish moss. The intense moonlight caused only its silhouette to be seen. No, baby, she insisted. Turn around. 
Don't be afraid. I got your back if anything goes wrong. There were no life jackets in the boat or any other safety devices that there should have been. When Lewis had paddled the boat about 30 feet away from the shore, things took a turn for the worse. Get this damn boat back to the shore now, Lewis. This is not funny, you jerk. I'm doing this for you. What? This? Lewis stood up in the boat. It began to undulate a bit. Yvonne grabbed onto the sides. Lewis, I'm scared, honey. Let's go back. You don't have to be scared. I just want you to see how much I love you. Let's go back, you fool, now. Okay. But first, I want you to see how much I love you. If you don't make love to me, I'm going to jump into this lake and drown myself. Go ahead. Just take me back to the shore first. Oh, you think I'm kidding? I'm not going to make love to you, Lewis. Especially not out here. You're just going to have to drown. All right. Fair enough. Tell you what. Just pull your skirt off so I can see that gorgeous body of yours in the moonlight. No, Lewis. Now let's go back, she screamed. Tell you what. I'll take off my clothes too. Okay? He began disrobing. As he pulled off his pants, the boat almost turned over. Yvonne screamed. Seeing how frightened she was, he began deliberately shaking the boat. Come on, baby, the dress. Out of fear, she complied. Now, now, no, forget you. He shook the boat again. She complied again, crying and swearing in protest. Only her black bra remained. boat out of here she squeezed her face in disgust we're through you bastard it's over Lewis now knew he had taken the sexual prank too far okay okay I'm, I'm sorry baby he said we're going we're going back now Lewis bent down to pick up the paddle as he stepped forward he tripped over his shoe in the boat and fell to the side his weight caused the boat to turn over Lewis and Yvonne spilled out of the boat into the murky water Lewis saw her pour out he ducked under to look for her but couldn't find her the water was darker and deeper than he thought the moonlight did little more than illuminate the surface he repeated his underwater searches for Yvonne time after time he dove under until he he no longer had the energy. Twenty minutes later, frustrated, out of breath, afraid, and consumed by guilt and fear, he clutched the bottom of the capsized boat, slammed his head into it, then screamed as loud as he could. Yvonne's death was ruled an accident, but it was no consolation for Lewis. He knew he was already serving time in a more severe prison. 
one from which he could never escape. And his sentence was for the rest of his life. He visited Yvonne's grave every day for nearly a year until the day he left. Every day he prayed to her on his knees for forgiveness, but he never did leave the grave site feeling absolved. After nearly a year, his family moved from the neighborhood permanently, thinking this in the best interest of their only son. If I could give my life for the return of yours to this earth, I would. I never ever stop loving you, Yvonne. I know. I've watched you all these years. Is this why I was so compelled to come back here? To submit myself to your judgment? I have no problem with this, honey. Lewis slid off the top of the tomb and onto the ground, onto his knees. Do with me what you will, my love anything just don't stop loving me because I will never stop loving you ever your return to this neighborhood isn't about me Lewis it's about you Yvonne grabbed his hands and lifted him to his feet I know how much you've suffered I promise after this night you will suffer no more. She planted another soft kiss on his lips, then said, the time has come. Meet me back at my house. Yvonne opened her arms as if to receive his embrace, then vanished. Louis was startled. He looked around, then ran out of the cemetery towards Yvonne's home. Passing rapidly by his old home, he did not notice that his car was no longer there. A few seconds later, he was nearly at Yvonne's home and nearly out of breath. He saw her in her front yard, her arms still open. He grabbed something of a second wind as he rushed towards her, not noticing the speeding vehicle approaching him from his right side. As he ran across the street that intersected with Yvonne's, the car was upon him. The driver did not honk the horn, nor attempt to slow down his vehicle. Lewis screamed as he placed his arms over his face and slumped towards the street. He heard the sound of the car as it approached, then the sound dissipating as the car rushed away. He felt no collision. The vehicle had simply driven right through him. He removed his arms from his face only to see Yvonne looking down at him. Now do you understand? She said, yeah, I'm dead too. No, honey, not quite. So what's happening? You never awaken from your sleep when your girlfriend set fire to those chairs, baby. The whole house was consumed within minutes. You were burned nearly to death. You've been holding on to life since then in a coma. But your spirit released itself so that you could return here. But Yvonne, I remember the flight I took, the car I rented, the drive to this neighborhood, all events implanted in your consciousness, baby. Do you also remember the near accidents associated with all those events? Yeah, come to think of it. 
they were all potentially fatal, you know. They too were implanted to help you let go. But why did I return here? In a very real sense, you never left here, Lewis. Your guilt always anchored you to this neighborhood. Your guilt at what happened to me, not to mention the love you've always had for this neighborhood. We felt that if you were allowed to see this area as it is now, you would understand that things change, that life moves on, that nothing in the temporal world is permanent, honey. Look at my home now. Lewis noticed that Yvonne's home was not the well-kept, well-manicured structure he saw initially. It, too, was old, although not dilapidated, definitely worn by the years. The image you first saw of my home was also an illusion we planted. Why? So that you could accept me without fear. Are you real, Yvonne? Yes. Oh, yes, baby. Do I still have you? You always did. I never left you. A great sense of gratification framed itself on Lewis's face. So, what awaits me on the other side? Me, of course, she said through an inviting smile. Isn't that enough? Your parents and many of your friends are there, too. Lewis turned and gave the neighborhood one last gaze, then said, I'm ready, baby. Let's go. Just then, a huge white light enveloped them. Lewis' middle-aged appearance suddenly transmuted into that of himself at 18. He grabbed her hand as their physical images melted into the light, which thereafter dissipated into the cosmic. In Lewis' room at the Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital, the doctor and nurses worked frantically to revive him. The straight line and the monotonic pitch from the machine next to his bed had alerted them only seconds earlier that Lewis' breathing has stopped. After several unsuccessful attempts to restore Lewis' breath, the doctor uttered in frustration, okay, okay, that's it. He's gone.